for a hundred dollars, who who wants to put this ball gag in their opponent's <laughs> mouth, right? Like. <laughs> And welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the podcast where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes and instead get up close and personal with some uh, famous, notable people from history. Yes. Uh, This week is technically Groundhog's Day. The, The full week? Well, so I say, no, I mean... Today. This week, Groundhog's Day occurs. Sure. But... I feel like, I say technically because Groundhog's Day has been occurring now for well on almost a year. Oh, at this yes. Point. Yes. It is a relentlessness, just like this relentless monotony of every day being the same thing. With your just minor coups thrown in for flavor. Yes. Yes. It's not like, where's Bill Murray? I If, if we're going to do this, I want some jokes. Yes. Yeah, that would be nice. I rewatched Lost in Translation recently. That mm. movie holds up. Does it? It does. I've seen it once, and that's it. But Yeah, it holds up. So what did our man um, <laughs> Phil from Pennsylvania... Punxsutawney Phil? Y- yes. Is that it? <laughs> that It's something like that. You know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about how many of those groundhogs have died. Why would you think about that? Because if you... Because... They're like, oh, Groundhog's Day, that you're right, everything keeps happening over and over. It's been like, what, I'm sure like 30, 50 Groundhogs at this point? <laughs> it's new to them. <laughs> That's a fair point. Yeah. I, I mean, at that point, it's not, there's like no inter radar reliability. These are just <laughs> yes. every year a new Groundhog goosing. Yeah, just, I'm starting to get the impression. I didn't want to say anything to. At the beginning, but I'm starting to get the impression these groundhogs are just making up as they go along. Right. They don't even know what they're doing. They just pop up, shoot from the hip, and here we are. Six yeah. more weeks of winter. That is that is what the groundhog said. But I, at this stage, lost all confidence. I honestly, I'm going to just have to go back and consult with my farmer's almanac instead. Mm. Really, at this point, do not give a shit <laughs> how long winter is going to be. I I would like a like a... An ostrich, an emu, like something that could peek its head up and tell me how many more weeks until I can get the fucking vaccine. Yeah, that would be <laughs> like nice. How many more weeks until that this is nice. over? What animal do we need to recruit <laughs> <laughs> to give us that timeline? Yeah, uh, I feel like, is it a snake? I don't know. What rhymes with vaccine? What? what Maxine. Mm, what kind of animal? Tarantula. It's got to be a venomous spider. That's just appropriate. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, not tarantula. Some, some, uh, are tarantulas venomous? I think they are, but they don't bite people. I it's don't know. It's just a black widow showing up and being like, hey, <laughs> sucks. Yes. Sucks for you all. <laughs> yes, the vaccine black widow. I like this. Mm. I'll try and think of, uh, probably in the middle of this episode, <laughs> I'm going to be like, oh, it's this animal vaccine, because I'll finally have thought of something that rhymes with It's vaccine. the Wolverine vaccine. There you go. Damn it. I win. Ah, <laughs> got it. Got it. it. Mm-hmm. So if you are in touch with any um, wolverines with a proclivity for premonition, please let us know. Yeah, that would be nice. It would be. Speaking of psychic animals, mm-hmm. who's this week's hero? <laughs> yeah, that's a, actually a really good segue. Um, so this week's hero, you might know him from the dozens of books he's written um, or Maybe you're like me and you've never read a single fucking one. So maybe you don't know him at all. But this week's hero is C.S. Lewis. Boom. Am I supposed to cut that part out? <laughs> oh, sorry. Wait, <laughs> let me get the real music. Hold on. <laughs> okay. So what do you know about C.S. Lewis? Um, so unlike you... Mm-hmm. I have actually read many of C.S. Lewis's books. Uh, as a kid, I was, yeah, I was reading all of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe books, like all seven, I think. Is it seven or nine? It's been a while. Yeah. Read all seven of those. Okay. I 
read his other stuff, the screw tape letters. I've read mm-hmm. his like science fiction stuff, mm. the weird Mars one. Uh, I can tell you now, though, we have been to Mars, not at all like what he was expecting. But yeah, I, I've read many of his books. About the man himself, though, I know surprisingly little. I think you are probably among the masses of folks who know a very specifically curated version of C.S. Lewis. Curated. Interesting. Mm-hmm. We are going to uncurate <laughs> some of some of those narratives. <laughs> what is the opposite of curation? Just globbing? Demolition. Dem- yeah. Yeah. Okay, there we go. I, I mean, I that's my impulse. I actually don't know what the exact opposite of curate would be. Let's get to demolishing. Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, was born in Belfast, Ireland on November 29th, 1898. And I'm going to tell you right now, I totally forgot to do Audrey's Astrology Corner. So Wait, what? I know, I know, I know. I got wrapped up in some things. Very busy. You get a break this week. How, how are you going to just deny the people what they want? I'm, I'm going to do it like this. Very transparently and apologetically, (laughs) I am so sorry. I will put an Instagram post with the Astrology Corner. It's just not in my research, and I'm not stopping to do it now. All right. All right. Fair enough. We we just keep rolling. Exactly. So we know him as uh, C.S. Lewis, but throughout his life, his friends and family actually called him Jack. Jack. It's a long story. But here is the one-sentence version. He had a dog named Jack something, and the dog died, and he was like four or five, and so basically then he told everyone to call him Jack instead. <laughs> okay. Everyone honored his wishes. He was known as Jack. Fair enough. Okay. Okay, kid. You bet. You win. <laughs> his father was a solicitor. His mother was a housewife as... Women were forced to be in the late 1890s. Yes. Uh, solicitor, I'm assuming, in like a UK parlance is uh, a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Yes. For, yeah. Yes. For us Yanks. For us. <laughs> uh, his mother was actually the daughter of a Church of Ireland priest. So growing up, his family was very religious. Seems like he had a relatively normal childhood. Um, he had an older brother named Warner that they called Warney big fan of nicknames in their family, yes. apparently. They had a good relationship growing up. They, His brother's about three years older than him, but they played together. They made up stories. They actually invented this fictional land called Boxen, where they had elaborate characters and a narrative and, you know, fun, imaginative things. Play for, pretend. Yes. Unfortunately, when he was nine, his mom died. Uh, on his father's birthday, no less. That is unfortunate, yes. It is, yeah. He gets sent to boarding school. His brother had already been there for a couple years. He's there for a little bit of time, but shortly after he arrives, the school shuts down, and the sort of public message is that there were not enough students. What really happened, though, was that the headmaster had a psychotic break and was institutionalized. And so oh, they sent all oh. of the children home. Yeah. Uh, probably a good plan. Mm-hmm. My guess is he saw some things. <laughs> yes. Seems a little rough to have your mother die and then the school leader be institutionalized in front of you. Yes. Seems rough. Bounces around to a few schools, ends up in not so great health, just... You know, they're like, oh, he had lung problems. And like, maybe he was just grieving and sad and like had no energy. He was a child. I mean, it could be. Or also, I feel like at this point in history, people are like, oh, he had a fragile uh, disposition. It's like, no, he fucking had bacteria is what he had. We just didn't know the name for it. Like, he had a prolonged illness and we didn't have penicillin yet. <laughs> Fair enough. So his father sends him to what is called a health resort. It's a school that also tended to his health, and he gets better from there. He spends a year there. He doesn't really love it. Apparently, it's like a very socially competitive place. 
I guess. Those health, those health, health school yeah. kids can be vicious. <laughs> it's while he's there that he actually sort of abandons his Christian faith. He gets really into mythology and the occult, which to me is just like such a teenager thing to do. Yes. I love it. I don't know about you, but I definitely had a phase where I was like, well, let me fuck with some witchcraft. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe these Greeks were onto something. Here we go. Why well, have one guy when you can have a bunch of them? All of them. Um, at the same time, he's getting really into Scandinavian music and literature. Oh, my God. So he starts writing epic poetry. He dabbles in trying to write an opera which to me doesn't feel like a teenager thing to do, but no, he's what? into it. Okay. He starts studying Norse mythology. And it's pretty clear from at this point, from a young age, he is very, very bright. He can understand the complexities and nuance in literature and writing is one of his things. It is something he enjoys and has a talent for from a young age. At 18, he's awarded a scholarship uh, to go to Oxford to study literature. He arrives in England from Ireland, and he fucking hates it. He, he hates, hates England? Yes. He hates the accents. He hates the <laughs> weather. He hates the landscape. And he doesn't just hate it like, oh, uh, I'm homesick. He, like, walks around talking about how much he hates England <laughs> for, like, the rest of his life, despite the fact that for the rest of his life, he basically lives in England. Yeah, that, okay, that checks out. Uh one, just the fact that somebody from Ireland is going to bitch about the English accents, just to start with. I know. So he's at Oxford. He's studying literature. He's meeting and studying with people like Yeats and Tolkien. Mm -hmm. They're contemporaries. And if you do the math here, he's 18. The other thing that's happening at this time in 1917-ish England is... World War One. World War One. Well, it's not happening in England so much. Right. But yes, in, in the vicinity. England is part of World War One at this point. Yes. By the summer term of his first year, I don't actually know how this works because he's technically Irish, but then I would assume like Ireland, England would a consolidated army of some sort. I Whatever. Mean, he I, ends up drafted and serving. Yeah, my presumption would be some Big old British Isles coalition yes. army. So on his 19th birthday, he arrives in France. He serves on the front line and experiences trench warfare, which is not something that he basically ever talks about again, but you could imagine it being so traumatic. Yeah, I recently watched uh, 1917. Mm. And uh, right before that, I watched another one. I forget what the other trench warfare movie I watched was. But yeah, I mean, like I can imagine in the days before you have like any real language for PTSD besides like shell shock. Right. Like the, if, yeah, if you see some shit, like for the rest of your life, your best strategy is just like, nope, not talking about that ever again. Yeah. Nope. And for good cause. Within six or seven months, uh, he's actually pretty gravely wounded. And he witnesses two of his friends die in the same bombing that wounds him. Shortly afterward, he's sent home. He leaves the war and moves in with a woman by the name Janie Moore. And this is kind of a strange arrangement. And it came as a result of a pact that Lewis made with his friend Patty Moore. And they promised each other, that if one of them died, the other would go home and take care of the other's like, family. Yeah. What? Okay. I so guess. it seems like a strange arrangement from Lewis's perspective, in my mind at least, because Lewis has a grown father and an older brother who do not need caring for. Patty's mother and sister do need caring for. Wait, it's not... The guy's wife that he's going to take care of? No, it's his mother. It's his mother? Yes. So Patty asks Lewis, if I die, will you go move in with my mother and help her take care of my younger sister? Okay, wait. It's Just pause for a second because mm -hmm. the counter side of this arrangement is Lewis was saying, if I die, 
Will you go take care of my brother and father? In the in the simplest terms, that was the pact. Okay, but C.S. Lewis survives, and so he, does. he goes to take care of his now dead friend's mother. mother. He is 19. He goes to live with Janie Moore. She is 45. He often refers to her as his, quote, surrogate mother. And um, that would be fine, except for the fact that they shared a, quote, deep affection for one another. Wait, what do you mean? That quote is doing a lot of the heavy lifting here. Mm -hmm. When you say deep affection. Yeah. So all that implies. But more specifically, from an article called The C.S. Lewis You Never Knew, here's a quote. Quote, Lewis's relationship with Janie Moore is still a mystery. Some scholars say they became lovers. Others say she was more like his mother. Lewis, though, hid the relationship from his father and his colleagues at Oxford University. Warren Rochelle, who's an English professor at the University of Mary Washington in Virginia, said, There was an attraction between the two of them from the very beginning. When he first met her, she was 45 almost the exact age when Lewis's mother died. And it's clear from correspondence that they found each other attractive and engaging. She gave him stability, a family, a mother figure. She gave him a lover for a while, but no one can prove it. That is that is one way to work out your childhood trauma around your mom dying. Yeah, and uh, I'm going to put into context for a while here. We'll get back to this, but it was for 30 fucking years. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> it wasn't for a while. He lived with her for, for 30 years. 30 years. Yes. <laughs> oh, so this wasn't like, oh, your son died. I'm going to come help you through this, like this hard times. Mm -hmm. No, I'm going to live in your house and potentially sleep in your bed yep. for 30 years years. Mm -hmm. So this quote deep affection is deep affection, <laughs> deep affection apparently. Yeah. It's a euphemism is <laughs> what it is. Euphemism level affection here. <laughs> okay, so back to 1925. Okay, wait. So the, he is still the, where, where he's home from the war and he's mm -hmm. living there. He's living there. 1925, he's graduated Oxford. He takes on a teaching position at the school. He is very well liked by his students. He has some uh, challenging relationships with his colleagues, but in general, he's thought of, he's thought of as like a very smart, accomplished person. He's writing a lot, and at this point, gets involved with this informal collective of writers. Uh, his brother and Tolkien are part of it. This group has dubbed themselves. The Inklings, which I don't know why I find to be really uncomfortable. Wait, what? The Inklings. Like, they're writers, so they're, uh, they're Inklings, with but ink. they have all got these, it. like, philosophical ideas, like Inklings. Uh, oh, it's a pun. Uh, it I got it. It just feels, like, uh, pompous. Oh, to me, it feels like a... Um, Nerdy? A nerd club. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I was going to say. Maybe it's a co maybe the combination of the two. I'm just like, oh, you're trying too hard. Come on, friends. You don't. If you have a an informal collective of writers, you don't need a name. Just be like, hey, do you guys want to come over on Sunday? Let's chill. No, and then when somebody's like, uh, yes, and let's get t-shirts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. Yeah, I I can imagine. I can mm -hmm. imagine this. Okay, so his brother, like I said, is also part of this group but is a little bit worse for the wear at this point in his life. So he's about 30. Lewis is three years younger, so he's 27. 27, so yep. he's So he's still back in the war at 19 or 20 and, like, been mm -hmm. living there with, with his friend's mom for, like, seven years at this point. Okay, right. got it. His brother, Warney, and C.S. were both known for drinking a lot. But Warney's drinking a lot was more problematic than CS's. Like, it prohibited him from doing, from reaching his potential. Got it. He ends up having to move in with CS and Janie. And apparently, Warney hated Janie, which to me feels more like a Warney problem than a Janie problem. <laughs> yes. But there's this now, it's this strange bedfellows in this home. It's like, C.S., his older alcoholic brother, his much older 
surrogate mother slash lover. Yeah. Her daughter. Wait, her daughter's <laughs> still there? Yeah, she's like a little girl. Wow. Yeah, yeah this is going to be an uncomfortable dynamic. <laughs> That's going on. That's in the background. This is like this messy life that CS has in the background that most people don't know about. Yeah. It's okay. one part of it. That's the beginning of it. At the same time that this is happening, through these conversations with other members of the Inklings, Lewis starts to feel this pull, this like tug to return to theism. That's as far as he'll let it go at the beginning. Just an, a potential willingness to return to theism. So these are like his, his church homies here. The, I mean, these are the Inklings. This is like Tolkien and a bunch of other writers. But they're religious and he wasn't at They're the time. very religious. Got it. Yes. Eventually, he rediscovers his Christian faith. He talks about it in his autobiography at first about how like he really didn't want to do it, but he couldn't stop it. Like he couldn't avoid it. God was everywhere. Okay, cool. Sure. The thing he would do was he would immerse himself in his work to avoid this call from God. But then the second he would stop thinking about work, he felt like God was there telling him, come back to the faith. And this big question that he grappled with was like, Okay, now my mother has died. I have witnessed my friends being blown up. I have done trench warfare. If there is a God, why would he put so much suffering on the earth? Yes. Which in my mind is like, yes, you were so close to getting it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is a big famous question, right? Right. Um, Yeah, this is like a classic problem in, you know, Christianity specifically, but like a lot of religions, right? Like why, why is there suffering if God's supposed to be good? Absolutely. By 1931, he does rejoin officially, reconvert. I don't know if you've been Christian and then you come back to it. Like, yeah, he rejoins Christianity and he becomes a committed and outspoken member of the Church of England. This bums Tolkien out real hard because he's super Catholic and uh, yeah. really was hoping, like, hey, if you're going to come back, come back and we'll All talk about suffering. <laughs> <laughs> If that's your question, then I have a religion with a lot of answers for you. (laughs) This is not a a podcast hating on any one religion. I'm just pointing out that this is a big conflict that they had. Yes. They're all about about this battle. Yes. So he is back with Jesus. They're cool. Over the next eight to nine years, he's writing and teaching. He publishes his first three books. Some of them are like semi-sci-fi with Christian undertones. Um, some are explicitly about this idea of like sin and desire and all sorts of allegories. Mm-hmm. He's still shacking up with Janie Moore. Okay, okay. And he's becoming kind of famous as this Christian apologist. So do you know what a Christian apologist is? Yes. Yes, I do. Can you, you can probably explain it better than I can. Sure. So it's not... It sounds like the word apology, but it's not like apologizing uh, in the tr- in the way we usually use the word. Right. Uh, there's this thing called apologetics, which is like the study. And it's kind of like theology where you're studying religion, but it's specifically the study of making arguments for a religion and mm-hmm. countering arguments against religion. So it's yes. like this whole discipline where like you get good at debating about why some particular religion is correct. Mm-hmm. And then like, you know. That you argue with your people in spare time, right? Anytime you, see, anytime you see people have debates about religion, it's that is apologetics. So the way that Lewis approached being a Christian apologist was very broadly. So he was not like one religion is better than the other. Basically, he was just like Christianity of any sort is better than no Christianity at all. Yes, <laughs> and he would do it like by objection by objection. So. Um, he prided himself on being like very rational and reasonable about it. I think that's one of the tenets of Christian apologists is that like it's not woo woo. It's like in here is why it makes sense. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. You're supposed to be able to argue with somebody using just like basic logic and facts that they would agree to and mm-hmm. show them how religion is right. So he's doing all this in 1939. Another war comes to the shores of England At 40, he is technically still able to join the army, um, but because he drank constantly and smoked like 60 cigarettes a day, the army was like, hey, no thanks. 
And he countered with, but I have done this. Maybe I could just like help you train new recruits. And the army was like, or you could, given your talents, write articles for the Ministry of Information. And Lewis thinks for a second and he is like, no, because then I would have to lie to deceive my enemies. And I don't want to be a liar. Oh, wait, he was, he was willing to, like, fight and kill people, <laughs> yes! but he didn't want to be a liar. That's, that my exact thought was like, okay, so you don't want to lie in a newsletter, but you're willing to train people how to kill other people? Yeah, I mean, like, look, if you are a conscientious, conscientious objector or a pacifist or any of these number of reasons you don't want to fight, I get it. But to be like, uh, yeah, I'll kill people, and they're like, no, thanks. Could you write this down for us? Be like, that's a bridge too far. <laughs> That I don't understand. Right. So what he decides he's actually going to do to help the allies in the war is to become a Christian radio broadcaster. He's going to use his talents as a Christian apologist to spread some sort of message. And he gets legitimately very famous for doing this. Okay. His broadcasts were later compiled into a book called Mere Christianity. His this gift of oration and, you know, conversation about spiritual and philosophical issues gets him promoted to the role of the president of the Socratic Club at Oxford. He's super pumped about this. He gets to do what he likes all day. He gets to teach other people how to debate and engage in difficult conversations. And he credits his time as when he was really able to hone his ability to, quote, eviscerate any argument that came his way, especially when it challenged Christianity. Because, you know, like people are showing up at Oxford, I'm sure. And every day he's just like trying to debate philosophy students about why (laughs) Jesus is the answer, right? (laughs) Yes. And if you can do that against a bunch of smug Oxford men in the (laughs) 1940s, you can do that against anybody. I mean, like Christopher Hitchens, I'm pretty sure he went to Oxford too. Like there's this, there's this, uh, there are atheists who do this too. All of them are insufferable. <laughs> oh yeah, no. I I'm just saying it's more the like either end of that is probably quite the sight to be seen. Like yeah. if you show up every day willing to fight 25 year olds about why religion is a specific way. He's literally the Ben Shapiro of his day. Yes. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Having done this research. No. C.S. Lewis seems a lot more tolerable than Ben Shapiro. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, we're going to get to it, but C.S. Lewis was down with the WAP. So oh, okay. You okay. can get it, right? Anyway, diversion. Because of his work debating, leading students to become better arguers, and his broadcasting and his writing, he's still writing all this time. He ends up writing, you know, like 30 some odd books. Like good books, <laughs> like novellas. Um, he is often described by people around him as brilliant. But what if I told you that at the same time he was described as, quote, a red faced pork butcher in shabby tweeds who lived secretly with a woman for years and was so turned on by S&M that he once asked people at a party whether he could spank them. Uh, You know what? I want to say I'm surprised, but uh, somehow I'm also not that surprised. Plot twist. (laughs) Just a huge horn dog. Yeah. Yes. Yes. He's an adult who gets very (laughs) drunk and and hits on people at parties in a really aggressive way. So this is where this episode really picks up. That article I mentioned earlier, the C.S. Lewis, you never knew or whatever. Another quote from it. It's tempting to remember Lewis only as a self-assured defender of Christianity who never met an argument he couldn't demolish. But the actual man, whom friends called Jack, had a, quote, horrible personal life, thought he had failed as a defender of Christianity, and spent so much time in pubs that his publishers initially struggled selling him to a religious audience. American publishers worried about offending their more puritanical readers because it seemed impossible to get a dust jacket picture of Jack without a pint or a cigarette. (laughs) (laughs) So it turns out, plot twist, C.S. Lewis was not this like saintly, brilliant, straight shooting, clear eyed genius 
that the modern evangelical community has sold us. He's running around at parties asking people if he can spank them. Yes. Right. He, it turns out he was messy and complicated and had normal human experiences, desires, and fears. And um, he's just not, he's not who we think he is. Sure. There's a, there's a very sanitized version that in service of larger goals, yes, it gets packaged up. Yeah, none of this. I was given a lot of C.S. Lewis to read uh, all through my childhood and never, never once did any of this come up. In the same way that people who learn about Lewis's Christian agenda go back and read his works and sort of unpack, oh, here's the symbolism, here are the allegories. I bet knowing this about him, if you went back, you could find some stuff. Yeah, you know, like, you know who this reminds me of? Mm-mm. Uh, Alton Brown. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes. So, <laughs> so but... tell our listeners what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, my oh, God. Okay. This is right. This is exactly right. Okay. So uh, Alton <laughs> Brown, right, had this very popular cooking show, I think starting in the 90s, or mm-hmm. like late 90s, early 2000s, mm-hmm. called Good Eats. And he's like, does like cooking, but with this very food science twist. And he's got like this weird sense of humor. Uh, but it's it's a fundamentally cooking show. He hosted Iron Chef America when it came out and everything. But in the last couple years, you've seen a lot of like uh, internet message board culture start to build up this narrative from like different people who've met him in person. Which, by the way, full disclosure, I met him in person uh, at yeah, a book signing. I was, uh, you bought your mom a book and yes, had it signed. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> uh, but so like in person, he's come across, and people have started to get these stories where he has like this very. Uh, direct dominating personality and then like other stories start to float around that like oh alton brown like he's kind of there's you know he's he's got this uh these behaviors and maybe uh these habits that would suggest that he's maybe into snm as well (laughs) uh and so this like i don't know if it's like internet lore or like rumors whatever and then he goes and does this show called Cutthroat Kitchen (laughs) on Food Network, which is now in like it's like 15th season or something crazy. But for 15 years, like it's a cooking show, but he also auctions off all of like torture, torture devices that the competitors like buy and like pit against each other. And there's like straight up S&M gear in there that he is like personally going out of his way to like strap people into and just like fucking loving it the whole time. The joy on his face when... He watches these chefs, like, have to, I don't know, scramble an egg inside of a... Uh, inside of a paper cup or something. Yeah, right? it's just like, he loves it. it the, but he no, it's like, it. it's like the breaker bars, right? Like, like yeah. you know, strap their... He's like, you will have... For $100, who, who wants to put this ball gag in their opponent's <laughs> yes. mouth, right? Like, yes. like okay. Uh, yeah. So it turns out uh, uh, what would otherwise be a pretty wholesome image from his mm-hmm. uh, early science cooking show days turns out to be a much more complicated person. Yes. Plus, so- I, just for the record, too, if you go and Google him, recently there's been this uh, this controversy where, like, he said he voted Republican a bunch in the past, and people were like, what? And he's like, I didn't vote for Trump. Don't hold... That's not me. Blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. But... I think the ball gag stuff is much more fun. Right. And I'll tell you what. If someone comes into our comments and wants to fuck around with Bill Nye, I will not be having it. <laughs> I cannot take another one. <laughs> Bill Nye stays wholesome. You can have Alton Brown. Okay. Okay. Where were we? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, normal human desires, fears, blah, blah, blah. Prolific in his academic and professional endeavors. Turns out you can... Have all of that on the outside and then have a personal life that is in complete shambles, like literal falling apart. He never learned to drive a car or type because he was too clumsy and like broke shit all the time. Okay. Okay. He was so obsessively paranoid about becoming poor. He refused to buy new clothes. So he like walked around in like holy clothes. Even once he's a successful author. Right. Got it. And then he has some kind of self-sabotaging behaviors once he's a successful author where he donates all of his book proceeds to Christian organizations, but he refuses to give up his job at Oxford despite the fact that it pays like one one hundredth of the money he's making from his book royalties. I all of a sudden understand where his fear of becoming poor is. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, he's giving all his fucking money away. He's giving away all his money. (laughs) 
And then he gets hit with a tax bill for all of these royalties and he's already given away all the money. Oh, so he shit. actually does end up pretty destitute at some point. Okay. But Wait, it, so, it doesn't start out that way. Sure. And like if he's just like giving his money to charity, I mean like good for you, mm-hmm. right? Totally. Effective altruist, whatever. You Do what you want with your money. But like the fact that he's like obsessing about this and then doesn't actually save enough to uh, pay the tax bill t- does tend to suggest that like maybe there's some self-sabotage going on there. Absolutely. And uh, his actual physical home was falling apart, like falling down around him. And they never repaired anything. So he's this polished, articulate person in certain settings. But in his day-to-day life, behind the scenes, he's also much more brash. And over time, a number of his colleagues grow to dislike him. There's this other article called C.S. Lewis Sins and All, which I found really interesting, a little bit difficult to read. It wasn't like a very straightforward, coherent narrative. But one thing that the author shed some light on was who he was in the messiest parts of himself. I thought that was really interesting. This author writes that he was argumentative and a bully. His jolly red on his face was that of an intellectual bruiser. He was loud and he could be coarse. He liked what he called, quote, man's talk and was frequently contemptuous in remarks about the opposite sex. As mentioned, he was a heavy smoker, 60 cigarettes a day between pipes, and he liked to drink. This beer and Beowulf Lewis, which I think is a really funny way to refer to him, this beer and Beowulf Lewis was understandably uncongenial to those of a different temperament. Which, if I'm going to be honest, makes him way cooler to me. Minus the sexism. <laughs> Everything else, just a yeah. little flavor. Yeah, it just, it's, he's not a saint. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And as his fame is starting to rise, he also starts to doubt his own abilities. Which happens when you, I don't know, abandon a faith and then come back to it. You're suddenly the foremost speaker on it. Like, you have to have all the faith. You have to apologize for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, And he starts to, like, really doubt his abilities. This gets worse after he loses a very public debate to a woman named Elizabeth Anscombe. So she's a young Catholic philosopher who, at this highly publicized debate, points out, uh, like, point by point, all of the inconsistencies in his reasoning, citing his own conflicting books yes. <laughs> like yes. all of the places where he has said like inconsistent things and this shakes his his uh confidence his confidence pretty badly after that he says quote nothing is more dangerous to one's own faith than the work of an apologist no doctrine of that faith seems to me so special no, so spectral so unreal as one that i have just successfully defended in a public debate and my guess would be one that you have also unsuccessfully <laughs> defended in a debate yes. as well. I mean, but yes, getting humiliated on stage will do that to you. But also, right, like if you are going through the trouble to like spend years of your life learning these arguments, right, like it, it is a very real possibility that like you also are you're trying to come up with arguments too, right? You're like mm-hmm. making up things and, and you're like, oh, like. You're, you're finding all the areas that don't have good answers as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the more you look, the more cracks you find. Like, it, as you get closer to something, the less, like, um, real it looks. Like, this is one of the reasons. You see this a lot in philosophy. Uh, theology to a lesser extent, right? But, like, people will talk about, like, oh, you go into these, like, e- even scientists, right? You, as you become more of an expert, right, you dig into it and you're like, oh, wow, I'm realizing, like, all the stuff that, like, we don't have answers for and as soon as you specialize. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, spending all day on stage making arguments is not actually the best way to convince yourself. Right. There's, like, that movie that we watched, I don't know, a few years ago, Doubt with Meryl Streep. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where the last end, she's like, I have so much doubt. And it's like, yeah, if you spend your whole life, it's like when you start to say a word over and over and over again till mm-hmm. you're like, this is so distorted. Is this even a sound? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean... I will just note one interesting parallel, right? The other very famous, very visible religious figure we covered, Mother Teresa, mm-hmm. had this exact same experience where she was held up as like this, like, uh, you know, bastion of the faith and like, you know, held up as an example. And 
yeah, basically it was like at the end, like, I, you know, I, I've lost all my faith, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, didn't publicly say it, right? But like internally uh, just didn't didn't feel any of the things that she felt back when she started. As this is happening, the way that he deals with it is he throws himself more and more into his writing. So he becomes less of this face of being this Christian apologist and more and more C.S. Lewis, the author. Two things happen at the beginning of the 1950s. The first is the Chronicles of Narnia are published. He was a well-established author before this, but this is when he becomes a household international name. These books skyrocket him to fame. The second thing that happens is that he begins a correspondence with this woman named Joy Davidman Gresham. She's an American woman. She is married to the author William Gresham, who I assume is published. (laughs) I did not (laughs) click on his Wikipedia page. But after reading a number of Lewis's writings, she converts from atheism to Christianity and she reaches out to him and is like, yo, I like your writing and I'm lonely. My husband hits me. Oh, yikes. It's well documented that Lewis almost always responded to any mail that he received. So, of course, he like writes her back. They strike up a friendship, corresponding back and forth for many years. And in 1954... Joy decides she is going to leave her alcoholic, abusive husband and moves to England with her two sons, David and Douglas. That will never come up again, but that's their names. (laughs) So she leaves her husband, moves to England. Lewis is like, yes, come stay with me. Is he saying come stay with me and my mother lover? Oh, no, she's gone. Okay. Yeah. She, um, sorry, when Lewis is uh, about 50, she develops pretty serious dementia. She's like 75 at this point, and um, she dies pretty quickly. Okay, so she has she has died. Mm-hmm. Lewis is on his own again. Yes. And he's like, come stay with me. Come stay with me. Uh, at first, it was really sort of this relationship where he saw her as this intellectual equal. They had really interesting conversation and... They were just friendly with each other. It was like, yes, we know each other. Come here. You need an escape. No problem. In order to extend Joy's ability to stay in England, they do get a civil marriage. So it's basically just like a contract that gives her a... A green card marriage. Yeah, green card marriage. Lewis's brother, Warney, at the time, or like a little bit later, said, quote, For Jack, the attraction was at first undoubtedly intellectual. Joy was the only woman whom he had met who had a brain which matched his own in suppleness, in width of interest, and in analytical grasp, and above all, in humor and sense of fun. I mean, in fairness, uh, when I first saw you, I was like, check out the supple brain on that one. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But also the way that Lewis's brother describes this, like, at first, that sounds like a really good relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you have all of these things in common, and you have fun together, like... Of course, at first, that's going to lead to something else, right? They get the civil marriage. They're living together. But shortly after this happens, Joy starts complaining of this painful hip. So she goes to the doctor, and she's diagnosed with terminal bone cancer. Oh, yes. I know. And at this point, the relationship had developed uh, like where you would exactly expect it to develop, which was they were in love. And so they sought out a Christian marriage. One historian noted... In terms of his emotional life, the quest for his lost mother dominated his relations with women. His companion for over 30 years was a woman old enough to be his mother. And when she died, it was not long before, like a Pavlovian dog trained to lacerate his heart with the same emotional experiences, he married a woman whose circumstances were exactly parallel to those of his own mother in 1908, a woman dying of cancer who had two small sons. Oh, yikes, I hadn't thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) Full circle. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. Men will really go out and marry multiple (laughs) women to reenact this formative scene from their childhood instead of going to therapy. They will do that and so much more, but that is exactly, exactly right. Fortunately, her cancer briefly goes away for a couple of years. They live happily. 
when it comes back, it comes back hard and fast, and she dies very quickly. Lewis writes this book. Um, it's a really apparently very heartbreaking book, very personal book that is about his experience of grief and loss. But because it was so personal, he published it under a pseudonym. He did not want people to know it was him. He wasn't prepared for the invasiveness that surely comes with all Mm -hmm. that that entails. The ironic thing is that people close to him and people who knew that his wife had died started to send him the book saying this might help. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, your wife's dead. This guy's wife died. It seems like maybe you could relate. (laughs) <laughs> and so he he ends up with like dozens of copies of his own book. <laughs> Yikes. Cruel, cruel irony. Um, and it was only after his death that it was allowed to be known to the public, oh, he wrote this book. Mm-hmm. This was him. Not long after Joy dies, Lewis gets pretty sick. He's in and out of the hospital for a few years. He has a heart attack. He has blood poisoning. And on November 22nd, 1963, he dies of kidney failure. Turns out you probably cannot be drunk every single day for like 60 years and not die of kidney cancer or failure. He dies just one week before his 65th birthday. And on the same day, within the same hour as the assassination of JFK and the death of Aldous Huxley. So Lewis's death barely made the news. Oh, yikes. Yep. Just just you're done. Big news day. Sorry about that. So that is the end of C.S. Lewis's (laughs) messy, interesting, to me, just like totally normal human life. Um, And and in researching him, like I found him to be just normal, like more so than him enjoying BDSM. (laughs) Good for you, man. Who cares? Or the fact that he drank and smoked compulsively. Like, I don't mind that he fucked his friend's mom for 30 years or that he was like an atheist <laughs> and for a bit. his friend didn't mind either. His, his friend, friend was didn't dead. mind either. Yeah, yeah. get yours, mom. <laughs> and then, you know, I, all of that feels just like inoffensive to me. The thing that kept coming up for me over and over again in reading this, like, where's the salaciousness of it? Like, this is this Christian man. There has to be something so salacious. The real, like, meet your heroes moment for me in this research was that, one, C.S. Lewis wasn't that salacious, and two, all the parts of him that were, like, he didn't hide. He wasn't like, I am saintly, I am good. He was like, I am a hypocrite sometimes, and I am sinful, and, like, I still want to argue for Jesus. Like, okay, cool. The fact that his story and his image has been so co-opted by the like modern evangelical agenda that works so hard to erase those messy bits of him so that they can sell a whitewashed version of him. That is really what I'm leaving this episode feeling frustrated about. So I'll end this rant with a kind of long quote from an article called C.S. Lewis Sins and All that goes... Walter Hooper, the literary advisor to the C.S. Lewis estate, was for many years an extreme Anglo-Catholic priest, but has subsequently become a Roman Catholic. He presides over weekly meetings of the C.S. Lewis Society in Oxford, where papers are read and discussions held by interested parties, mainly students. It is not an exclusively high church group, but there is a distinctly Catholic bias in Hooper's interpretation of Lewis that not everyone who knew the man would find completely believable. Most noticeably peculiar is Mr. Hooper's picture of his hero is his belief in the perpetual virginity of C.S. Lewis. There is very direct evidence that Lewis was not a virgin and that his marriage was consummated. It would also be amazing, though no evidence is forthcoming either way, if Lewis's relationship with Janie Moore, his adopted mother for 30 years, was entirely asexual. Ordinary biographical criteria, however, are not allowed by Mr. Hooper to apply, since for him, Lewis has become a sort of Catholic saint, and one can hardly believe in a Catholic saint, both of whose sexual relationships were with women who had husbands still living. Therefore, when Lewis wrote, a grief observed, that he and his wife were lovers, that they had, quote, fallen in love, that, quote, a noble hunger long unsatisfied met at last its proper food, 
that she was his, quote, mistress, that we were one flesh, that, quote, no cranny of heart or body remained unsatisfied. He was, in fact, writing a work of fiction. Mr. Hooper has a natural bent for hero worship, and because he believes celibacy to be a high virtue, he cannot believe that Lewis and his wife were, as Lewis himself wrote, a sinful man married to a sinful woman. And in the United States, among Lewis's Protestant devotees, there's an analogous awkwardness about his passion for alcohol and tobacco. Some of Lewis's American publishers actually ask for references to drinking and smoking to be removed from his work, and one has a strong feeling that this is not so much because they themselves disapprove of the activities as because they need Lewis, who was, against all evidence, a non-smoker and lemonade drinker. All that is to say, while I personally don't think C.S. Lewis did any like extreme harm to anyone while alive or dead, for the very reason that it is not a good idea to worship anyone, and because I don't fuck with anyone the evangelical church wants to whitewash, C.S. Lewis is not my hero. Taking him to the level where you're like, oh, I love his work, uh, especially all that fiction he wrote about how much he loved his wife and had sex with her. I know. <laughs> like, excuse me? Right. I mean, like, this is the thing, though, right? Like, we've always talked about the things that it takes uh, to be lionized, right? It's like, one, uh, this projection of confidence, mm-hmm. which he did, mm-hmm. even though it wasn't true. He didn't feel it. He right. just faked it. Yep. Even when he gets demolished in debates. <laughs> and then, too, a cleanup crew. And he found a ready and willing one in the church around him. Right. I don't know that he would actually have personally asked for the cleanup crew. Oh, no. It, was, certainly... it sounded like involuntary compared to like the fact that they're actually purging stuff from his works means like he right. was much more open and direct. But it doesn't matter in this case whether he wants it or not. The fact that they're there is the thing that's like perpetuating his image and like, you know, keeping him relevant. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to sell the Chronicles of Narnia as like a Christian trilogy when you're like, hey, it's a sloppy drunk who enjoys sex with his wife. <laughs> Read this, kids. Oh, but the line's Jesus. Don't worry. <laughs> the line's Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. No problem. <laughs> it all connects. <laughs> so, yeah, I found this. I found... C.S. Lewis to be um, more interesting than I thought he would be, honestly. I thought he was going to be some square who had like a secret hidden life when really he was just like a kind of a scraggly man who had a broadcast radio show and liked to argue. If people want uh, more sloppy drunks who have sex with their wives, where can they find us? <laughs> um, well... <laughs> They can find us on social media, Instagram and Twitter at Your Heroes Pod. And um, they can find us on our website, meetyourheroespodcast.com. We actually got a couple um, suggestions from someone this week. Emailed to us like, hey, could you do this person or this person? And we want to let that person know that, yes, we will be doing those people. So stick around. Thank you for your suggestions. And um, until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye.